We're going to open up our Bibles again now. Uh, our reading this morning comes from the book of John, and uh, Cam's going to lead us in that. Uh, please do follow along in your own Bibles, whether you have a mobile app or a device like that, or you've got a Bible with you, please open with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. Uh, John, chapter 16, and we'll be beginning at the middle of verse 4. John, chapter 16, 4b. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thanks, Cam. Uh, it would be really good to get your Bible open there at John 16. Uh, we are making our way through this uh, section of the Gospel of John where Jesus is addressing, he's talking to his disciples on the night of his betrayal, uh, the night before the cross. If you want a little bit of a hand following along, there are a couple of outlines that are available on the welcome desk, a very brief one and a longer one. Uh, feel free to go and grab one if you would like that. Uh, before we jump in, we'll pray together, shall we? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this time now to consider your word and to consider what you are saying to us. We thank you that you are the God who speaks, who's spoken in the past, who's called your, caused your word to be written, and who brings your word with power today through the Holy Spirit. We ask that the Holy Spirit would be active now in my speaking, in our listening, and in our lives, that we might be transformed for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, throughout history, there have been many battles and many wars fought. And on many occasions before a battle, uh, there have been recorded addresses that a general will give to their troops, a way of stealing their resolve, of calling them to arms, calling them to succeed. A couple of examples that you may have heard of before. This is the address of Eisenhower to the troops uh, the day before D-Day, the Normandy landings. He says, you are about to embark on the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Their hopes and the hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our other brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring around the destruction of the German war machine 
the elimination of Nazi tyranny over oppressed peoples of Europe, and the security for ourselves in a free world. This next one comes from uh, Joseph Stalin, uh, again during World War II. He says, the issue is one of life or death for the Soviet state, for the people of the USSR. The issue is whether the peoples of the United Soviet Union shall remain free or fall into slavery. There must be no room in our ranks for whimperers and cowards, for panic mongers and deserters. Our people must know no fear in fight and must be selflessly join our patriotic war of liberation, our war against the fascist enslavers. Stirring speeches, aren't they? A call to arms, a call to war, a call to battle. Now you may remember a couple of weeks ago when we were last in the Gospel of John, we saw that Jesus is preparing us, his followers, his disciples, for a horrific time in this world. A time of war, a time of battle. He tells us what we can expect from this world because we are attached to him. Because the world hates him, it will hate his disciples also. We can expect to be hated by this world in which we live. But no, he doesn't tell us this so that we will run and hide. He told us this because in the midst of that, we are called to bear witness of him. We're called to announce the good news of Jesus and what he has done in us and for us. And this is scary stuff, isn't it? If you spent the last couple of weeks daunted by this task that Jesus has given us, you are in good company. I am there as well. Well, following on from that, Jesus, the gate general, is again addressing his troops. But this is not a stirring speech to take courage. It's not a call to look deep within. It's not a call to nationalistic pride or fervor. His speech contains something much greater, much more important, much more significant. He promises his church He promises his people a helper. He promises the Holy Spirit. So if you have a look there, starting at verses 4 and going through verses 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus is addressing disciples who have become very inward-looking about their situation. He says there, and it's kind of a critique in verse 5, He says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? Now, this might seem a little bit strange if you've been tracking along this whole series that we've been doing, because on two occasions, first of all, Peter in chapter 13, and then uh, Thomas in chapter 14, both of them have asked, where are you going? Now, commentators have found different ways to get around this. Some have tried to rearrange the order of the chapters here to sort of say this one, well, this one came first. Uh, others have sort of made an attempt to, uh, to make something of the present, um, the present case of now, saying, well, why aren't you asking me in this moment? But there's, there's probably something even deeper going on. It's the way the question has been asked. 
The disciples have been asking that question, only worried about themselves. It's like a child leaving it in the evening and the parent asking, where are you going? It's not so much the destination that's the question, it's the fact that the child is leaving. The disciples haven't really been concerned about where Jesus is going. They've been concerned about his leaving and what it means for them. But Jesus is doing something here to lift the eyes of inward-looking disciples, to prepare us for this great call to live in a hostile world bearing witness for Jesus. A promise that he is making based on his return to the Father. Based on his track of glory through the cross and the empty tomb (coughs) to be raised to the right hand of the Father. From there, he is going to send to us the Holy Spirit. And here this morning, we want to unpack two particular roles that the Holy Spirit plays in our world and in our lives as we are equipped and enabled for this ongoing mission of Jesus in the world. And the first one, starting there in verse 8, is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world. The Holy Spirit, Jesus says, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, if you read the commentators, there is a little bit of debate here about how we should understand that word convict. And there are two main ways in which you can go. Is it, on the one hand, that he will convict, as in he will announce guilt or pronounce guilt on the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment? In a sense, that that sort of fits with what Jesus said at the end of chapter 15, that he came and he convicted the world of its guilt as they rejected him. Is that what it's saying here, that the Holy Spirit will bring a verdict of guilty as, it bears witness to, as he bears witness to Jesus? On the other hand, could it be that this is talking about an internal conviction? That the Holy Spirit will be at work internally convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they come to put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus. Now, I wrestled with this a fair bit over the last week because it does make a bit of a difference to how you understand this. And when I wrestle with stuff in this church, particularly in the New Testament, I go to one of our two resident New Testament experts. And I get to make a choice about which one I go to, depending on how much reading um, I want to do. And because I can ask Steve, and Steve will give me a lot to read. You know, he he will put a lot of thought into it, and he will give me a big, long answer, and take a long time to read. Or I can go to Martin, and Martin will write a book for me. Uh, to, to read on, on the topic. Well, I went to Steve this week because uh, I didn't have enough time 
uh, to read an entire book. And Steve was helpful because, in a sense, we don't have to choose between the two options. The Holy Spirit, through his witness to Jesus, is doing both. Because this is what Jesus himself did. I want to take you just for a moment right back to the start of this Gospel of John. And listen to what it says in the introduction about what Jesus did. Chapter 1, verse 9. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What did Jesus do in his ministry as he announced the good news? Well, for those who rejected them, that rejection announced their guilt. It was their conviction. But to those who did receive him, what happened? They put their trust in him, their hope in him. They came to believe in him. What's happening now is Jesus pours the Holy Spirit, sends the Holy Spirit into the world to bear witness to Jesus. The same things are happening. For some, their hearts are hardened to the good news. They're hardened to Jesus. And their conviction is completed. And for others... Their hearts are broken and softened and transformed. So they put their hope in Christ. Imagine a courtroom. A courtroom in where the prosecutor is laying out all of the evidence against the accused. Item after item, he lays bare what the accused has done. Well, the accused has two ways to go, don't they? They can harden their hearts and stand in defiance and deny it all and be pronounced guilty. Or they can be broken. They can plead for mercy and throw themselves at the mercy of the judge. The Holy Spirit is given into this world and is bearing witness to Jesus. He lays out charges in regards to sin, it says. Sin, because they do not believe in me, says Jesus. This is, in a sense, the greatest sin of all. Out of all of the things that we have done wrong, to fail to believe and put our trust in Jesus is the greatest rejection of God there can ever be. He says concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer. The righteousness that Jesus speaks about here is really, in a sense, self-righteousness. It's that sense that I'm good enough. I can, I can cope. I'm good enough for God. Well, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will convict in terms of Righteousness, because I I go to the Father. Because Jesus will set the standard 
for righteousness. He will show the standard, which is absolute and complete obedience to the Father. In going to the cross, he will show what that complete obedience looks like. And in the bearing punishment for sin, he will show how vile unrighteousness is. He says, thirdly, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Throughout the Gospel of John, particularly in the early chapters, the world has been putting Jesus on trial. It has been putting him on trial and finding him guilty of blasphemy. And as a result of its, his guilt, according to the world, it will hang him up on a cross to die. But an ironic twist, that cross will be the judgment of this world. And it will be the judgment of the ruler of this world. He will be pronounced guilty. And so will all those who follow him through the cross. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness to Jesus Bringing conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The only question is, how will people respond? Will they harden their hearts? Will they keep their stand of rebellion and be pronounced guilty? Or will the Holy Spirit powerfully and graciously break into their hearts, break into their lives, cause them to throw themselves on the mercy of God. There's a wonderful example of this second part happening right at the start of the book of Acts. These disciples will be filled with the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost. Peter will stand up and he will, he will preach a bold gospel message. He will declare the guilt of those who took Jesus to the cross. He will say, you crucified him. And at the end, those who hear will be cut to the heart and ask what they need to do to be saved. How are they cut to the heart? It's the Holy Spirit. Powerfully at work, bringing the truth of the gospel to bear. But this is not just something that happens in the Bible. This, in fact, has happened for every single person who follows Jesus, who puts their hope and their trust in Him. This has happened for every single one of us who is a believer. It's happened because the Holy Spirit convicted us and brought us to life in Christ. We might think about all the different things that God used to, to bring us to faith. We might remember our, our godly parents, maybe, who taught us the Bible, who great models of, of godliness and pointed us to Christ. We might remember youth leaders and other people in the church or camps that we went on and speakers that God used. But ultimately, ultimately it was the Holy Spirit who brought about that conviction 
who changed our lives. I still remember quite clearly one of the, the first times that I knew that that was happening in my life. I was about 17 years of age and I was on a Christian camp. It was one of those camps where they made you read the Bible for yourself in the morning. And I'd been to church all my life and I knew what God expected of me and I, I, I knew the Bible very well and I had good parents who taught it to me. But there was a moment when I was reading from 1 Corinthians about love and the Holy Spirit convicted me that I wasn't doing it and that I could never do it. And my self-righteousness, my attempts to be good enough, were never going to be enough. And he pointed me to Christ. And he showed me my hope, my forgiveness was in him and not in what I could do. You know, it could be today that you feel that for yourself. That you feel the sense in your own life, in your own heart. This nagging need or an overwhelming sense of guilt and shame. A weariness of trying to do it on your own terms and by yourself. You know, that could be the Holy Spirit convicting you, prompting you, prompting you to turn to Jesus, to find your life and your hope in him. You know, this also should give us tremendous encouragement when we think about our role of bearing witness to Jesus. It should give us encouragement and it should steer us away from any sense of pride or self-worthiness. Because as we announce the gospel, we trust that it is the Holy Spirit who is at work and will convict people and bring them to faith. We might use stammering, stuttering words. We might be the world's worst evangelist. But God, through the Holy Spirit, can bring about a change of heart and a change of life in someone. We should steer away from thinking that we're the world's greatest evangelist, that we can convert anyone, and we should share our faith with boldness and with courage and with hope that God, by the Holy Spirit, will be the one at work. And He has the power to break through the toughest lives the most resistant of hearts and can bring about eternal salvation for people. Well, that's the first work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about here to encourage us and to strengthen us. He brings conviction to the world. The second one really flows on from it is that he guides disciples into truth. The Holy Spirit doesn't finish when we come to know Jesus, when we put our trust in Him, He continues to be at work guiding us, guiding disciples into all truth. Have a look there at what it says in verse 12, how it starts off. Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
We have disciples who are in sorrow, who are anxious. We have disciples before the cross and the empty tomb. There are things they need to know and there are things they are not ready for yet. Jesus says it. But verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. The Holy Spirit then, Jesus says, is going to come and he's going to continue to teach you. He's going to continue to guide you in all truth. But it's not his own truth. It's not different truth. It's not other truth. It says there in verse, uh, carries on, for he will speak, not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. What will he do? He will glorify Jesus because he will take what is Jesus, belongs to Jesus, and he will give it to the disciples. How will disciples cope in a world of hostility? In a world that denies the truth of God, which tells disciples they are wrong for thinking and believing what they believe. Well, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will guide his people into truth. Again, in the, gospel of, in the book of Acts, we see a wonderful way in which this played out on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came upon a group of disciples who up until that point had been pretty ordinary. That argued about who was the greatest amongst them. They got confused by the things that Jesus said. They doubted him. But yet on that day, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they spoke with clarity and with boldness and with conviction the gospel as the Holy Spirit guided them in all truth. Not only that, The Holy Spirit continued to be at work in them, and many of them, to record for us the books of the New Testament. These things that they were not ready for yet, Jesus gave through the Holy Spirit to these people. They recorded them, things that are yet to come, things from God for us. This whole Bible, the whole book, is given from God, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, causing to be written exactly what God wanted to say, His truth for His people. But not only that, God, by His Holy Spirit, continues to be at work through His Word today, guiding disciples in truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says this, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Not only by the Holy Spirit has God caused His Word to be written, now by the Holy Spirit He gives us understanding of those things that He has written. Not just in our minds, but also in our hearts. Now, I don't know if you can remember as far back as uh, learning maths at school. Some that's pretty recent, some that's, well, let's just say not so recent, uh, shall we? 
Maths is hard, isn't it? For, 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 for most people, maths is really difficult. There's numbers and sometimes even letters on a page and equations which you've got to figure out. I wonder whether in learning maths you ever had that time where someone just gave you a key or a clue to help you understand it. I think maths is one of those subjects where you get these aha moments. Ah, that's how you do it. And all of a sudden all these numbers and letters, they make sense and you can put them all together in the right way. Aha, I've got it. The Christian life is full of aha moments. I I understand that now. I get it. And the teacher, the guider, the one who gives those aha moments to us is the Holy Spirit. Who's at work within us, giving us understanding of God and the things that he has said to us. Not just understanding, but transformation. Changing the things that we love. The things that we believe to be true. And the way that we act. You see, God has not left us alone. He's not left us isolated. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Who works in and through His Word to encourage us, to strengthen us, to equip us to be his people in this world. I know that many of us sometimes find the Bible scary and daunting and difficult. We often don't know where to start. We're often worried that we're going to read things that are confusing or don't make sense. But let's remember the wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit who himself guides us into truth. Pray for his work when we read and when we hear his word. You sit down and you spend that quiet time or that devotion time to yourself or the family. Pray that it will be the Holy Spirit who will be speaking and giving us understanding and leading us through it. When we prepare to get together on a Sunday like this and to hear God's word proclaimed or we get together in a growth group to study it together, pray, trusting that the Holy Spirit will be speaking and powerfully active in guiding us into truth, guiding us and transforming us. Younger people here, don't be afraid to start reading God's word on your own. Don't be afraid because it's daunting or difficult. But get into it, trusting that God will speak through the Holy Spirit. He will give us understanding and guidance and wisdom as we spend time in his word. And for those of us who have been studying the Bible for years and reading it for a long time and don't get tempted to be self-reliant. Don't be tempted to think of your own training or your own wisdom or your own skill to understand what God is saying. Trust in the work of the Holy Spirit. Desire it. Pray for it. 
ask for it, rely on it, that it would be God himself guiding us into all truth. Let's pray together, shall we? Uh, Lord God, we thank you uh, that you have so generously given us the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his work in bringing us to faith in Christ, for his convicting work in showing us our sin, our guilt, and causing the light of the gospel to shine brightly within us. And we thank you for his work in enabling us to understand your truth as given to us in your word. We thank you that you, through the Holy Spirit, bring light to our minds, our hearts, our understanding, our wills. And we pray that as a church we would know that deeply and richly and through experience. Lord God, we ask that the Holy Spirit would be active in us. That we wouldn't quench His work, resist His work but would receive it and accept it so that we might be transformed for your glory. Amen.